beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. What a fun day this was. Yvette and I have never met before, but we became friends due to our shared connection with Lynn. We met on Father's Day in Musenberg. The plan was to find a quiet coffee shop, do the recording and then meet Lynn for lunch, after which I would record my conversation with Lynn. Yvette was down for the weekend from Mossel Bay, while Lynn had to be in Cape Town from Saldana. What luck that was. Unfortunately, due to Father's Day, we could not find a quiet place at all and had to work with what we could get, which ended up to be a busy and noisy restaurant. As it was also raining, we could not even sit outside. The sound quality of this recording is bad, but the content of our chat is rich and I found it very rewarding. This podcast is supported by The First Layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There is also a 24-day step coaching and counselling program available based on The First Layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. Yvette is an artist and is also an alcoholic in recovery. This is her path. Sit back and enjoy. Right, and we are live. Yvette, welcome to Meet Me in the Field. Thank you. It is so awesome to meet you. I was sitting in the bar this morning wondering, are you an old new friend? Are you a new old friend? Or what are you? Because today is the first time we meet. But we've had a lot of contact. We've had we started off with Facebook friends, and then we started chatting on Facebook, and yes. then we just had mutual interest in terms of recovery. And mutual I used friends. mutual friends, and I used you for some work that I'm having done. I'm still excited about that because okay. um, Yvette is an artist, and I used her to paint the Meet Me in the Field logo for us. Yeah. And what I'm busy having T-shirts made. And I'm going to have coffee mugs made with that painting on them. Uh, so I'm if surprised. you buy a t-shirt or if you buy a mug, you're going to have a copy Yvette Hess on your mug or your, or your <laughs> chest. What we're doing is Yvette lives in Mosselbach. Yes. But when I got to know you, you were living in Longabar. Yes, so, well, Saldana. Saldana. Yeah, okay. Saldana. They're very close to each other, am I right? Yeah, it's about, depends how fast you drive, but about 23, 30 minutes drive. Okay. So further than I thought. Yeah, it's, I don't yeah. think I've driven that road sober, so so <laughs> I normally I normally drove it stoned and it felt very close. Kind of, oops, you know that those time lapses yeah. and there you are. Yeah, yeah, I am at KFC in Langabon. Yeah, no, I remember those nights. <laughs> <laughs> I have arrived. How did I get here? <laughs> so, but now you now live in Mossel Bay, mm-hmm. and you're currently in Cape Town for just a bit of a holiday and a workshop. Yeah, so I did the workshop um, a few days ago, but there are other things planned cool. that I'll share with you. And you make a living as an artist? I do. That's it's not excellent. A, it's, it's not a great living, but it's a very rewarding living. I became an artist, I'd say, about two years ago. I would okay. say full-time. I'm actually an IT auditor by trade. <laughs> <laughs> I know, okay. I know. You know I, how did that happen? <laughs> I actually, when I was younger, I always I was very creative and I went to art workshops and things during holidays and I would keep the kids busy. And my dad asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an artist. He's like, no, artists are poor people. Oh. I was like, I could see you disappointed. So I, I went into the Sunday Times newspaper and I looked at the career section. And one of the highest paying jobs was a chartered accountant. And I, then there I decided I'm going to be a chartered accountant. And I happened to be good at accounting. And I did really well, went to varsity, then I dropped out because I wanted to be a dancer. These things happen. And I became (laughs) a dancer. Did you go to UCT or? No, at first, when we lived there, because we moved, I was born in Cape Town, we moved to the Free State in 93. How old were you then? Seven. And where in the Free State did you go? Sasselberg. Oh my God. I know. Why then? My dad was in the Navy as a fireman and they had that almost like a... You know, like an exchange program thing. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. And then he was transferred to Cecil, the fire brigade there. That's what I would call a shitty exchange. <laughs> yeah, you know, but it was, for me, it was great to grow up there. Even though, you know, I don't, 
I don't experience the culture of Cape Town and all of that. Um, but it was interesting. I okay. learned a lot about people and myself okay. that side. So it was a different world, you know. We used to walk to spa and people used to just stare at us. Because I mean, I was the first person, first, first, first person of color at my primary school. Oh, you serious? We couldn't get me into other schools. They would just, you know, avoid um, us coming through. Or when we do come for meetings, they would just like not see us often. I would stay at the school. And um, there was only one school that would take me, and that's where I went. You must have felt like the, but as my mother would call the pimple on the pupil, the pace of the pupil. You stood out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kids that also left because of me. Are you like, serious? Yeah, it was hectic. It was really, because I mean, that was 93. That was before changes yeah. and stuff. But change is still kind of already seriously happening. It was yeah. inevitable. You know, you, yeah, had, you had to accept this. You had great. to. Yeah. But it was like so only they like were a just living official in. later. Yeah. So um, I had a very progressive principle. And, um, but I mean, times are still, it was very tough. I can imagine. So yeah, for a seven-year-old. Yeah. So you just don't don't belong. It's, it's, oh, that must have been absolutely terrible. Yeah. I mean, you really feel like you're different. Yeah. And then you're like, but you are different. You're in that environment where somebody tells you, and you're made you're to feel that you're constantly aware of the fact that you are different. Yeah, exactly. Oi. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I, I did really interesting things, like join the foot trackers, and I did really well. You did. <laughs> yes. Yes. Foot trackers. Yeah. Oh my god. I I remember in standard two, there was a boy in my class. I think his name was Daniel, if I remember correctly. And he was a fur tracker. And I wanted with my whole heart and my whole soul, I wanted to be a fur tracker. Mm. And I don't know, I don't think I ever asked my parents. Mm. I, I, I was just too ashamed. I don't know what it was, but mm. I never got around to actually doing it. Mm. But I always looked up, up those little uniforms were so cute. <laughs> And all my badges. Oh, my God, I had so, so did you badges. have the whole lot? Were you yeah. an overachiever? Uh, yes, I've always been an overachiever. <laughs> Proud to say, yes. I mean, I did um, food trackers, I was in choirs, color patrol. Gunsweet straight? Yeah, I did all of that stuff. I was so were you in Afrikaans school and stuff? No, it was an English medium school. Good but thing. I was very involved in the Afrikaans side. Okay. I had a teacher, primary school, I think at that time it was Sabi. She... I would say she took me under her wing, but she was also okay. she was involved with like with the foot trackers, and she wanted me to be ah. a part of that. And so you were a groundbreaker where, wherever you go, you're kind of the. I think so. One of those icebreaker yeah. ships that could just go. Yeah, not taking this cuck anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. No, I think also you know sometimes um, if we if we put those rules or you know it's almost like we're trying to be something else yeah. and we're really i feel as an alcoholic um, i was trying to be something else yeah. you know Absolutely. and if i don't claim the label i also feel like i'm trying to be something else or trying to please somebody yeah. else you know so yeah i do swear also quite a bit the concept of overachievement mm. of just wanting it's it's virtually kind of buying acceptance I'm only going to be okay if I am the best at everything. Yes. If I do this, if I do that, if I, maybe I will get the love, maybe I will get the acceptance, maybe I will fit in, maybe I will, it was always just maybe, the okayness was always somewhere else. Yes. It, it wasn't with us. Exactly. Are you the oldest child? Yes. Okay, of how many? Of two. So, okay. and we're three years apart, uh, two girls. Okay. Um, but we were raised in a way, you know, to be independent guys. So, you know, helping with the changing flags and doing this you know women should be able to do this that kind of thing cool and i think that's also where i get my my strength from or that that sense of wanting to be in the independent okay i get it from that awesome yeah and did you grow up religiously or spirit spiritually or i would say so um we were baptized old apostolic and it's you know it's quite a strict old apostolic yeah okay. quite a strict oh, yeah, that's church quite... yeah with still hats and you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And the church is quite strong in our family, on my mom's side. My dad's side, not so much, and it's a visit from a different church. But I, I think I felt also very constricted in there. Okay. And I think also in my recovery, because, you know, you have to look into whatever your higher power is. Yeah. I found it very difficult, difficult to do that 
because I have this strange relationship. This it's almost like I'm fighting against something all the time. Yes. And then I, I also need that relationship within my recovery. Yeah. So I find like I still, you know, don't know where to place my feet. Yeah. So but, as a child, did the whole Jesus thing resonate with you? Or did you also felt there that you didn't belong for some reason? I think definitely that I didn't belong. I was very uncomfortable with the idea that I'm weak. I didn't want to be seen as weak. And we also drilled as, as a young kid said, you know, don't be weak. And that wasn't really a fan of being sensitive and I was a very sensitive child. So I didn't want to be seen as weak. And in my church, my understanding at that time was that, you know, God is strong and you are weak and you are imperfect. And, that kind of, and I always felt broken because of it. Okay. And I felt very, dif- it was difficult for me to rely on this higher power to yeah. help me up. When I didn't want to be weak to begin with, and now you're already telling me I'm weak. You mean like in the, the Christian faith tells you that yeah. you're weak because you sin and because you need yes, God that, and those type yes, of things? Yes, okay. yeah, okay, yeah. right, I get that, yeah. Oh, I've never thought about it that way. That's, that's always been one. my experience. I think that's why I still struggle to this yeah. day, just to feel vulnerable. Okay. Um, in that sense. I'm vulnerable, I allow myself to be vulnerable different spaces but this one is a very tricky one and it's, it's taking me time and I think and I'm trying to give myself also that slack to say it's okay yeah. to learn and you know learn as you go along so let me just kind of try and get that in my mm. head mm. so you're taught to be independent and strong mm. you go to church and you are taught that you are weak because you're a sinner and you need God in your life because you you sin. Yeah. Yet you already feel you don't belong, which makes you have to be strong to fight to, to kind of belong. Mm. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> now there's my book right there. Thank you. <laughs> I get this picture of this poor girl being torn apart. Like yeah. You're standing being completely torn apart between these things. Mm-hmm. And you're also very open about your depression. Yes. And anxiety. Yes. At what stage did that feature in your life? The fact that I'm open or the illness itself? <laughs> <laughs> At what stage did you become aware that you are, that this actually, that this feeling is not okay? Um, I would say with my first attempt, my first suicide attempt, okay. and that was around 19. I think I tried to block out the years. I can never remember, but I was it was before I was 21. I felt like a failure, you know. I just dropped out of varsity and I was dancing. It was the first varsity attempt and I was dancing and it just wasn't working. My parents were, you know, What type of dancing did you do? modern dancing, Zulu dancing, you know, okay. whatever tickles your fancy. So you left studying for a chartered accountant to dance? Yes. Your father could not have been happy. <laughs> not that, happy. That's such a lovely that, way to put it. <laughs> is that the understatement of the century? Yes. Yes. You must have been furious. They were very, very disappointed, especially because at that time, they was obviously they were still paying for my studies and they decided to sell the house to pay for the studies and then Yvette decides like oh she's not gonna study anymore you know and obviously the dancing doesn't seem like it's viable you go from accounting to that to what's wrong with you but I think I was also just acting out and I was trying to find 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 a place also as a teenager I Mm. mean besides illness and stuff like that as a teenager I was really struggling to find a space that I felt comfortable with so and you um, didn't find that in church you just I didn't you you just, just at what stage did you stop connecting with church did you stop going when you were did you get Christians as a child or as an adult? No, as a child. As a child. I think when I was, um, I loved my matric year because I could say, now I'm studying for my matric exam, oh, okay. I don't have to go to church. So um, it started then already. Okay, so that's where, the, where you started subtly distancing yourself from it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And were you living at home while you were at varsity? First six months, no, I was on campus. Okay. Best years of my life. <laughs> Worst marks of my life. <laughs> Um, but it was just I needed that experience as well but yeah I was catching on too many things and then 
I was brought home for the second half. Okay. Yeah, and then I dropped out in the second year, okay. my second year of varsity. So, how were you as a teenager? Because you're this overachiever, but were you were you also a rebel, or were you a fitting fitting in, a, a, a compliant? Um, initially, I was. I mean, I was a very quiet child. Okay. I tried not to give any problems, and I mean, literally quiet. You know, you wouldn't know if it was around. Good grief. Yeah. And the feeling that I get from you in the little town that I and know I'm like you the is, yeah, it's like in. I see it as this. If it is small, <laughs> well, I know you can't see her, but she's she's, she's not exactly a big person. I always seem like this little, I don't know, it's a little chatterbox. <laughs> yeah, and it's not off button. That's yeah. unfortunate. That is a, like it's a defect. I didn't have an off button. So, when and how did that change? I would say in my varsity year. Okay, um, so you came out of your shell. Yeah, I came out of my shell. Um, what happened was I was. Like I said, I was very quiet and struggled with um, relationships and things in high school. I was, I always, like I said, I always felt out. And I was one of the few people of color, like in this big group of friends that we had. And I mean, as much as those things were changing, I still felt, I think because of the introduction that I had into this world, I didn't feel good enough. Yes. How old were you? You, Because you came back to Cape Town from Sassover. Yeah. How old were you then? It was 2007. So I was like 23. Or, yeah, I think 23. No. I can't do maths on like with a, with a mic in front of me. <laughs> I can't do maths. Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> were you, you were still at school though? No, um, I just had my... Oh no, I was around 21. Yeah, 21. So because the, I had my son. Um, and I just celebrated my 21st birthday. And that's when my parents decided that we're going to move. Back. My dad did a lot of traveling towards 2005 around there and um, in 2007 he decided that we need to come back to Cape Town. Oh, he gave us a choice, live in Iran, because he was living there at the time, or live in Cape Town, so we chose Cape live Town. Live in Iran? Yeah, he was in Iran. But just before we moved back, I was at Varsity there and then I dropped out and I worked as a critics clerk and I was dancing as well, okay. doing shows and things like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was even on Morning Live. Oh, oh. Yeah, I mean, Morning Live, guys. <laughs> it's Morning Live. So, yeah, we actually did a, a show for them. With a solo or group? Or? Yeah, with a group. So, I was with a dance company. Okay. But it was more like entertainment than, I would say, fine art dancing, if you want to call it that. Okay. Yeah, so then we moved here 2007 and I started UCT in 2008. When did the drinking start? I would say my first memory of drinking, not to get drunk, just drinking, no. was um, when I was much younger. I think I was in primary school or early high school, and my mom loves making tipsy tarts. Not tipsy tarts and she's so good at it. You know, you're supposed to put like a couple of milliliters in, and she's just like, <laughs> Yeah, and she's not a drinker, but that was like the thing, you know. And I wanted to taste it, not in the cake. So she would keep it in the food cupboard. And I tasted it, I was like, oh, this is terrible. I'm never drinking in my this life. This is disgusting. Oh, uh, yeah. Until and then, the hot glow beat you. <laughs> and then I turned 18. And that's when my boyfriend at the time said, no, if you're 18 now, we need to, you need to drink. Because I did, I told him I don't drink. He said, okay, but at least when you're 18. And we need to go to the casino. So we did both in one night. And I got drunk. Oh, my God. And Which casino was, best, was that? It was Emerald Casino. Okay. Yeah, in front of Bell Park. It was the best feeling ever to be drunk, to oh, not, yeah. to, to not feel, to not, and just be happy. Mm. Everything's funnier. Um, I was dancing well. It was like I wasn't scared of anybody. It was just mm. amazing, and it just started from there. Yeah. It's amazing that I remember my first joint. Mm. That 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 for me suddenly, the fear disappeared. Mm. It was as if that that barrier of fear that I lived my life was just kind of. It's just the way that we cope and other people use different ways yeah. and we just kind of got lost in that Absolutely. in that coping mechanism. And I feel like, you know, people, so many people judge me for using that coping yeah. mechanism, but you're using something else. Yeah. You tried to commit suicide at 19. Mm. But at what stage did you realize that you're depressed? Or did, did it never... No, it, it never... never 
doen? No, I didn't. I think the reason why I I like I like it when people write about, like blog about the depressive episodes or what they feel, and watching videos about it is that you see the lived experience. You see what it looks like practically for different people. Yeah. And first of all, you see that it's different for different people yes. manifest in different ways. And We're I think, all individuals. Too. Yeah. So yeah. besides there being a list of symptoms that you can maybe resonate with, yeah. but you need to be able to map it to something, to a daily life. And I never had that then, okay. so I couldn't see it. Yes. So maybe I mean, if somebody else was trained, they would be able to see. Okay, she's um, speaking even less, or she's because I was I was dating at the time, but I could feel that I was pulling away. Okay. But I didn't know. I wasn't a, a, that much aware of it. You know, or I, I could feel it every now and again, or just like, ah, you know, okay. whatever. You keep blowing it over, blow it, blow it over. But if I had that information then, or somebody said, okay, just just take note. Yes. Maybe it's something, maybe it's nothing. Just take note. I would have seen more. Yeah. And the day that I decided to tempt, I decided I'm going to make my dad a cup of tea. I'm going to offer because I never do offer. And that was like a problem. And the way I offered was a problem when I did offer. So obviously it was just like, okay, do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> so now I was like, okay, would you like a cup of tea? And that's And then you me... sound, sound sarcastic. <laughs> like, I can't win. It doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound real. <laughs> and then after that, I just decided... But it was a weird kind of decide, man. You don't like... It's not like you're telling yourself. You're just like, this is the last. This is the last tea I'm going to make. Yeah. He won't have to complain anymore, or I won't have to let let him feel like he's let down, or I'm letting him down. Yeah. And I, after I made the tea, I wrote my letter and I put it on the side. I asked my sister, "Would you um, want to sleep in my bed because we both had separate beds, bedrooms?" And she's like, "Yeah, sure," which was also out of the ordinary. I don't know what my mom was doing. I can't remember what she was doing. And then I decided to, before my sister came to bed, and take the, all the pills. When I looked at the side effects, you know, because I thought that's an obvious thing. You look at the side effects before you take something. It was all like coma because I just I didn't want to die. I just wanted to sleep. I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. Anymore. Yeah. And I then I went to sleep and I woke up throwing up and I was very upset with myself that I was still around and they rushed me to hospital. I had to get all that stuff out. Because a lot of the meds started taking effect, I was very sleepy, so in and out of sleep for a couple of days. But when obviously with being discharged, they take you to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist would just tell, told me like, "No, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be scared. There's just two sides to you." But I didn't feel like he was giving me the answers like, to why I was feeling like okay. this. He didn't say anything, or maybe he did, that it was like a chemical imbalance. I, um, he just told me you need to take these meds. And I think because I was like, very young, yeah. um, I just didn't understand. Um, and then obviously went to therapy and I couldn't connect with people. And a lot of the therapists that I had were all like very religious or so. Okay. And that also made me uncomfortable. From that experience, I always walked around with this feeling of something wrong with me. Nobody can understand me. Um, I feel alone. I'm the only one who's, who's like this. And then only when I started blogging and reading more about other people's experience, ah. I understood that I'm okay. not alone. But I couldn't understand why nobody's talking about it. Yeah. If it's happening such a lot, why are we not talking about it? Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of where I and, and that's find we, myself. That's we, all of us kind of try to break that mold. Yeah. Guys, let's talk about this stuff. It's okay around the dinner table to discuss that. Yeah. Because I got it in the addiction field as well. We people would call in mm. and they really won't know what to call it so especially family members they mm. won't know where do I go mm. and they say I don't know whether I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing I said, well you made this call that is the right thing to do because I realized that it's not something that you discuss around the dining room table if my son has an addiction problem who do I call mm. people just don't say that. Mm. So you are effectively lost. You are lost, you are on your own. Yeah. You don't even have the energy to want to look after yourself, but here you have to make this big call and get help. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So at what stage did the drinking start escalating? 
Okay. So I drank a lot. <laughs> oh, you should have seen that face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I drank a lot. I it was free for me because I was dating the SRC president. And oh my was, god. You know, the stuff was overflowing and because it was free and you're a student, you kind of just indulge more. Yeah. And obviously you have stories to tell, so you have to get drunk. And then I had my eldest son in when I was just turned 21 and then obviously I had to stop drinking. But I remember when I was struggling with breastfeeding, they said, no, you can have milk stuff. And I was so flippin' excited. And I never thought that that's a problem that I was so flippin' excited. Yeah. I didn't think of it as a problem, you know. And you kind of walk around with this, with this ghost. And I would drink. When we came to Cape Town in 2007, I would drink, what's a Black Label. Mm-hmm. And some of like quartz and glasses. Um, I had an aunt, I'm not gonna even mention her name. She would pour for us, right, while we're doing the dishes. And I would drink of it, and when I look again, my glass is full. And I'll just carry on and on. I wouldn't say stop. Yeah. You know, it's only now that I'm aware, like, I allowed that I wanted that to to happen. And also, want to note that my, my grandmother and on my, on my dad's side, I do have family who are alcoholics. No, okay. Invariably. Uh, yes, <laughs> and I never wanted that for myself, and I'd always like. I don't associate with that and I don't want to look like that. Were you aware of that as a child, that your grandmother has a problem? Yes. Okay. Um, I remember many a time we would go to her and she drank and we'd, um, she would sing like jingle bells and stuff. And I could smell the alcohol and I was so uncomfortable. Okay. And I didn't want that. And yet I, I didn't turn into that. But we, you know, we share that. Okay. And I think that was also part of me my part in fighting the stigma because that's what you think it looks like but it also looks like in my example hiding the bottles in the cupboards ah. empty bottles full bottles mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah. Um, yeah i think it's taken me a very long time to see the stuff now like yeah. retrospectively and to see that I've had a problem for a long time and I'm just covering it up with, oh, I'm a, I'm a student, oh, you know, it's just a party. Yeah. Why so many parties? <laughs> you know, why, um, why are you carrying on with that one excuse? Yeah. You know? Do you think the alcohol contributed to your decision to stop studying? No, I don't think so. No. What, no, I don't think so. Maybe. You know how they say that what we do is instead of addressing our behavior, we rather readjust our goals. Mm. This actually would make sense then that I would rather work because then I would have money to buy alcohol yes. than study. So that, that, that type of thing. One of, the, one of the best quotes I've ever heard was one that says, the day that I realized that my circumstances were dropping faster than I could drop my standards. Mm. I was when I know I wasn't sure. <laughs> So yeah. we, we constantly drop our standards to, mm. to, to adapt to, to, to where we are yeah. and to make that okay. Mm. That's interesting. I wanted to say though, like, I think that the drinking got a bit more out of hand when I was in Saldana, actually. So when did hubby happen? The year after I was diagnosed, 2012. 2012 and that was the time I was studying full-time I was a student leader I was managing bands and I was working at the city oh, and wow. a single parent good call yeah and still yeah I don't know how I got the stuff done I, I really honestly feel I was manic for extended periods and then just like you know the episode ended yeah and then um, it just kind of got lost so I, I met him in that time that I was getting I was going down and I told him, look, I was diagnosed last year by a GP and that's what I'm struggling with at the moment. And he's like, okay, let's look at how we're going to... Was your student at that stage as well? No, he was working. Okay. He was working in Saldana and I was in Cape Town. So no. he would travel so where every weekend. Where did we meet? My sister was actually dating his neighbor. Oh, okay. 
and it was for quite a few years, but we only met like in the third year. Okay. And I was dating somebody else at the time, and we went to my sister's ex's birthday party, and he happened to be there. Okay. And that's where stuff went down. <laughs> Uh, that that will have to, that we don't have to censor because you're not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you met husband, and you're in Cape Town, and he's there. Yeah. And then he obviously asked you to marry. No. I first felt pregnant. Okay. And but we we when we met we were just like okay we're gonna marry we're gonna get married, but it's like yeah let's take our time and then boom, we met in March pregnant in August. Okay. And we were married by the, by December that same year. Okay. So everything happened very quickly, very, very quickly. And then you moved to Saldana. Yeah. So from this hectic life in Cape Town. Yeah, we moved because I was working at Deloitte, and then I got married, and then I worked at Ernst and Young, and then I stopped working because I fell pregnant again. So it was like the third baby, okay. and there was a lot of complications, and I was ill also, and not dealing with things at home. And then I decided to stop working and my psychiatrist also at the time said, you know what, you haven't been a mom, so you should probably be at home. And I think it was probably like the worst decision I could have made because I'm not a home person. I'm a people person, like yeah. be around people. And they just kind of set it further in stone, like go into depression. Even when I was in Saldana, I was depressed often and I had to go to the clinic in Cape Town quite a okay. few times. So the depression was quite bad mm. at that stage, mm. and the drinking? Yeah, I tried not to drink because of the medication, Okay. but that didn't stop me. My psychiatrist, the initial one, said, yeah, you can't drink anymore. And I was like, oh, damn it, like, how am I going to be okay? Am I going to be fine? Am I going to laugh? I'm going to be at parties. Yeah. I'm going to explain that I'm not drinking anymore. And then the second psychiatrist, the, the female one, said, look, I'm not going to tell you, don't stop drinking, but don't mix your medication. So what I would do is I would drink and then not take my medication. Oh, my God. I was like, the, the drinking makes me feel good anyway. See what I mean with we yes. adapt our priorities to the drink? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But nobody picked it up. <laughs> um, only when I got my psychiatrist in the west coast okay. that she started asking questions about the drinking and my therapist as well and she was like don't you think you have a problem and I was like no 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 I don't have a problem I can control my drinking okay. but the drinking was obviously controlling me and your husband was never telling you kind of stop when this is getting out of hand or fights about you, it you would hint about it and say things like it's not like you have to drink so we don't have to buy the wine now or, you know, like, why must I buy another bottle? Didn't you just have a bottle yesterday? Okay. But all those, the, the things that he said always made me feel, probably because I was, you know, kind of aware of it and feeling guilty about it, would make me feel like, you know, he's accusing me or something or he's yeah. about to label or telling me I have a problem, okay. you know, and yeah. then you get like defensive mm. and I would always make excuses and stuff. Uh, you sound like a real alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, you know, who knew? <laughs> While all this was going down, mm. where were you with spirituality, with God, with religion? I don't know if it's if I'm, because I'm an emotional person. In my church, they would say it's not because I'm an emotional person. They would say it's because I'm a gifted person. Okay. So whenever I would go to church, especially with like when I was going through difficult times, I would really I would get emotional, I would cry in church and I just feel almost like some would say like you know feeling the spirit but because of that conflict I couldn't label it as that okay. so when I did feel like down I would pray and just like help lift me okay. lift me from this where I find myself but at the same time I also felt like I couldn't rely on that okay. because I was you know, imperfect. Yeah, oh. it's a very strange way of thinking of it. That's just how I made sense of it or nonsense. Did you feel judged? Constantly. I mean, I didn't have to wait for somebody to judge me. Yes. I would like look at you and I would <laughs> fill in the gaps for you. Yeah, I always say, you, you don't have to judge me. I do that very well for myself. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you don't have to break me down. I do that. Excellent. <laughs> One of my I'm a professional. <laughs>
at what stage did the art come into it? I therapist in Friedenburg picked up that I really enjoy the art classes at the clinics. Okay. And she, because I was also struggling with being at home, constantly in the house with the kids and things. Because now you're a mother of three boys. Is that yes, good as well? three boys. Oh my god. Yeah. She felt that I needed to make time for events. Okay. And she said, because I enjoyed the art, I should try to go to art classes that they in Friedenburg, usually on a Saturday. And I was like, oh, but it's expensive and all that. She's like, just try it once a week or like once a month, just go. And that's when it started. That's when I was introduced to it. Okay. And it just kind of evolved from therapy to me just really loving every minute of it and really pouring myself into it. Well, it sounds as if it happened very quick. It was very quick. It was really, really quick. I went from going to classes to also get to speak to people because I was always in the house. So I got to make friends and then also learn technique. But I think I was also very curious and because I'm just am ambitious by nature, I wanted to learn more and learn fast. Yeah. So that was like, okay, we need to get internet now because I need to check YouTube. I need to do this. I need to, I need to learn more. No, I suffer from a disease of more. <laughs> Sorry, Kimi, more. Have you, like, I'm an overachiever. We need to. Yes. And so I felt like, okay, I need to now step away from that and then focus on this craving that I have to okay. know more. And I started posting the stuff on Facebook and all of a sudden people wanted to buy and I'm like, oh, oh good, let's see where this goes. And that was very quick. I would say painting, from painting flowers and pictures that I found on the internet and boats and stuff. Within a year, year and a half, I wanted to go into more expressive stuff. For me it was very daunting because I was surrounded by people online even that was just, they were obviously painting what they were seeing but I wanted to paint what I was feeling yeah. oh, okay. um, and that for me was very scary because I also because scared now of you're going to, to pay your soul on yeah. canvas and it's going to be there forever unless you paint over yes and, and people I actually see it and they're judge exactly exactly it was also I was just trying to surround myself with people that I admired and who were, who were doing that exactly what I wanted to do okay. and then it felt a bit easier so then your focus changed so you looked for other things on the internet and joined other groups yes yes um, and also I think also instead of observing just what people were painting I was now observing and reading up on these stories okay. as well um, I was also I've been blogging that time it was about four six years anyway but I also, so I thought maybe there's a way that I could combine it because I love both. So, the creating the art and then also the writing. Yeah. And I've always been a sharer. So I thought this is a natural move, you know. I just have to trust yeah. what's coming. And eventually you came into recovery. Eventually. How did, how did that happen? You know, I met Lynn over Facebook, like most friendships these days. I actually saw that she was in a blogger group. And she said something about the West Coast. And I was like, that's weird. I'm from the West Coast. I live in Saldana. And she's like, I live in Saldana. And it turns out she just lived around the corner from oh, where It was so weird. All this time. And she was just there. And I saw she was blogging about addiction and alcoholism and things. Like, I'm going to put the thing back on her. It was just also at the same time that my therapist and my psychiatrist was like broaching this topic with me. Okay. And it just worked out nicely, so I read a bit more and I asked her the one day, I think we were actually four bloggers at the table, I wanted to do something. And then I said, I just want to know, Lynn, is it normal for me to drink every day and um, hide the bottles? in my cupboard oh. where my husband won't see and then she's like um I don't think it's normal <laughs> but and then you know we spoke then she's like you know calm me down and stuff like that and then we were about to leave and she said don't worry don't worry about it we can talk about it I'm like okay and then we had a little meeting thing and she said okay I can take you to AA oh. and how that, scary was that oh no it was amazing it was the best 
it was it was just what I needed at the right time. Okay. I felt so at home. Oh, awesome. Because I already had that, I find the comfort of the label of bipolar disorder because I know what to, what I'm dealing with. I wanted to know what I was dealing okay. with. Okay. And I didn't like, I never liked feeling alone, even though I've always been alone. Um, so I knew that I had that to look forward to. I'm no longer going to be alone. So for Fantastic. me, it was more that kind of thing. I could just be vulnerable and like imperfect and, yeah. you know, that something wrong with me. And it would be totally okay. Ah, yes. So I had a really good experience. Awesome. I didn't have to say anything. I could just be. Yeah. And I was, you know, in a safe space. Yeah, totally safe. I, w I went. She didn't go again with me, so I went alone after that. Okay. Yeah, and I, I was proud of myself for still going afterwards. And it's also weird. Once I started speaking about it, I even did it at my my son's birthday party. I met with one of his friends' moms, and she wanted to see my Instagram account. And then, like, well, alcohol came up in the Instagram feed, and she's like, "Oh, uh, my husband is also an alcoholic, and he goes to uh, the AA and stuff. You might just tell me when you want to go." And I'm like, "Wow, look how the universe yeah. is like working for me." Yeah. So, how long were you sober when you moved down to Mosulbay? No, that was already like. A couple of months, but still early days. I'm now 300 and I think 20 days sober, so I'm going for that one so it's year. It's nearly one year. Oh my word! Yeah, I'm like thinking, what am I gonna drink? Milkshake, obviously. Yeah, I'm gonna have milkshake, but then they must pour it into a champagne glass. Ruiz makes a flavored grape juice, vanilla and pomegranate. Don't lie, really. It is lovely. That's what I drank at our wedding, and it looks exactly like champagne. Mm. So, well, everybody knew I'm in recovery, yeah. but I didn't feel out. It's you know you still have to do the work in terms of why are you drinking? Absolutely. You know, if you're drinking like even as one stage I thought I had an issue with tonic water because they got now the flavored ones, the rose one is my favorite. I can't finish. I mustn't. Or I, you know, be a problem. If I'm finishing six cans within an hour, why, why am yeah. I doing that? Absolutely, you know? yes. So as long as you're doing the work before the time, yeah. I think then it's safe. Yes. I really do want to try that uh, the alkalized wine. Uh, not to have wine, but I just want to know, yeah. you know, what it tastes like. I was in the beginning of my recovery. I was very, you know, that in AA they tell you um, non-alcoholic drinks are for non-alcoholics. Yeah. So I was very, very afraid of non-alcoholic yeah. I'm okay with it. Mm. I don't go in search of it, but if it's there, I'll, I'll have it. Um, mm. But anyway, so now you came into recovery. Mm. Where and how did the spiritual angle come in for you? When I lived in Saldana, I got to meet uh, another blogger, also one of Lynn's friends, Siobhan. She's okay. a crystal healer. Okay. And I think she introduced me to alternative healing slash alternative spirituality okay. but it gave me an opportunity to look into what works for me yeah. what makes what allows me to feel safe but also empowered at the yes. same time we don't have the same uh, rituals or that kind of thing but she just like I would say open the door or show the door yeah. for me and I got to walk through awesome. so in this recovery I've been doing a lot of that kind of work and you know in terms of angels and universe and God and all of that that type of conversation okay. having with myself on a day-to-day -day level and with the recovery I feel like I'm sober and sober of heart and I like Brave that, enough. sober of heart. Yeah. That's a nice word because that's exactly, yeah. Exactly, you know, and I feel brave enough to actually ask the questions and answer, you know, the yeah. ones that I'm ready to answer in terms of that space. So that's been like a big thing, you know. Okay. And I always found it like even in AA, you know, people would rely so much on God and spirituality, but I couldn't make that shift yet. Yes. And I feel like I'm finally getting slowly there. but surely slowly baby steps I think I'm in second gear now. Maybe I'm going to do the third. <laughs> I'm still going up a hill. And first is a bit too much. <laughs> okay. But is art a spiritual experience for you? A spiritual practice? That is a very, very good question. 
Somebody complimented me the other day, and I still haven't replied to the compliment. It was such a big compliment. And it, it was more, and I took it to my therapist because I said, like, sometimes I get complimented and I freeze. Okay. I don't know how to respond because I'm like, this person, how can they think that of me? But it was going into spirituality. She said, if you think of yourself when you're creating and you don't take that responsibility, like, this is all you. If you think and you allow yourself and you think I'm actually being guided this is pouring from something else and you're an instrument would you feel comfortable with that and then I was like yeah I'd actually feel not only because like less responsibility to worry about <laughs> what people think but it's, it's also I feel a lot more like valuable you know yeah. like I was chosen to have this gift, so there must be something special about me. Yeah. So in that way, I think art has, has given me that opportunity as well okay. to explore spirituality in that sense. Cool. How old are the children now? Eleven, four and five. Okay. I would say they see now, mommy is more vocal, Okay. mommy is more present, even though mommy is a lot more busier than what she used to be. She, when she's not busy, she's more present. Okay. And mommy's not waiting until four o'clock for the nanny to go so she can start drinking, you know? <laughs> yeah, they value that more, I can okay. see. Um, so I can, I can see these things are changing at all. And in terms of my husband, he definitely can see I'm a lot more vocal and hear that I'm a lot more vocal. I don't think they talk about this a lot, that when you are with somebody like in a relationship or marriage, that when you are the supporter, you also need support. That's the first Absolutely, thing. Yeah. And the second thing is, you know, that they, they try to press on you like, you know, you're you're not your illness, you're not your illness. But when somebody's ill for a long time, you kind of see the person as a patient. And the patient feels like a patient, you know. And and very often you lose sight of the individual. So the person's now my supporter and I'm the patient. And I forget that that person is my husband and I'm the wife. Yeah. And I think okay. it takes a lot of work from both sides to remember, to go beyond that. To actually redefine the roles. In Definitely. The, in the yeah. Now with uh, alcohol, you could see that it was important to me. So he has respected that. I mean, initially when I said, no, I want to stop drinking or I need to stop drinking. He's like, no, oh, maybe one drink, a, like a month or something. I said, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. Okay. And as much as I have to allow myself to be vulnerable, he also needs to see like, my wife is even less perfect than I thought she yeah. was. <laughs> and <laughs> is he drinking now or? He hardly drinks, he's not really a drinker. Does that irritate you? Sometimes. Like, why are you not drinking? Is it because of me? It freaks me out that my husband just doesn't like the taste of alcohol. We will go to for a nice meal and I would say, have a glass of wine, you know, I'm driving. I say, I don't feel like wine. How can you not feel like wine? Spoken like a true alcoholic. <laughs> it makes absolutely no, no sense to me that you're, you're having a wonderful meal and you have tonic water with Yeah. <laughs> oh, we are such alcoholics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else you want to add to your story that you think you would like our listeners to know? Um, I think I touched on it about the, the coping mechanisms, you know, and I think once I realized alcohol was just a coping mechanism, a lot of the shame kind of went away. Yeah. And I, like I said, a lot of things, a lot of problems in your life, a lot of circumstances about perspective, you know. We can even drown in in sorrow, in whatever like negative emotion that's flying quotation marks, <laughs> if we have the wrong perception or the wrong mindset. Yeah. There is no reason to feel shame for this coping mechanism. Yeah. And there's no reason to feel shame to ask for help. Yeah. People are ask for help all the time. I mean going to a bank for a loan is asking for help. <laughs> me asking you to come and talk to me was asking for help. Yeah. No. So, I think we need to emphasize, I, th I think the world is changing to become more self-aware and more conscious of how we treat other people. 
and I hope that we become more conscious of how we treat ourselves. Yeah. Me asking for help is actually showing myself some self-love. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a huge shift that, that, that has to take place. Yeah. So let's end off with you telling me a little bit about your goal of climbing Kilimanjaro. <laughs> Uh, okay, so last year somebody told me um, she's not a sufferer of mental illness, but her mom is, and she wants to climb Mount Kilimanjaro for mental health awareness. For me, that was a big thing because when she said that she wanted to climb, I was depressed. And I was just like, You are saying that you are going to climb a mountain, and she's very much. She's, well, she's a lot fitter now, but I mean, she just looked like the type of person that couldn't climb. Okay. And that, that, that really stuck in my mind, that couldn't, couldn't, like, who, couldn't for who, you know, who are we talking about here? And I was thinking, if she can, if she can even just say it, then I can too. Yeah. I can get up, I can make my coffee, I can get up, I can go for a walk. I can, you know. Yes, I've got some weird chemicals in my brain and this bad, you know, reactions and things. And yes, I'm trying to cope with alcohol. Um, but I am so much more than this. I can do it. What I've discovered is how immensely life changed by changing one way. Replace can't mm. with can. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no. You, you, <laughs> so much changes. Yeah. So that's like my my take on things. And, it's, and it has really pulled me through some dark times, even recently. You know, I would like settle, I would be in bed for a couple of days a week and then just allow myself to feel that way. Yeah. And then in a few seconds, I'm thinking, this is a brilliant idea. Oh my goodness, this can really work, you know? And then I, and I sit on that feeling because I was in bed for so many hours, but those couple of seconds, you know, your life can change. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Cool. Yvette, this was lovely. Thank you very much, Freddie, for Thank having me. Thank you very me. much. I, would, I really enjoyed this. For the people who haven't figured out yet, we are sitting in a restaurant <laughs> um, and it is Father's Day. So there's a lot going on around us. I hope that I'll be able to bring the noise levels down. But if not, then um, enjoy the fact that we're alive and that we, 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 we don't live in a vacuum so I don't have to do my interviews in a vacuum. Yeah. Awesome. Indeed. Thank you so much. Look after yourself. Let's wait for Lynn and have a lovely lunch. Yes. <laughs> I really apologize for the sound quality, but it is what it is. I enjoyed my chat with Yvette thoroughly. She is such a bundle of energy. Her diminutive stature is well compensated for by her large personality. She was so easy to chat to and we connected instantly. I thank her from the bottom of my heart for making the effort to talk to meet me in the field. Please visit her website which is yvetthes.com, that is Y-V-E-T-T-E-H-E-S-S.com, or a Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com forward slash blogger forward slash. She's also on Instagram, at Yvette underscore Hess. I googled her and found quite a lot of information about her involvement in the bipolar program, as well as support for bipolars. It is worth googling her and looking at those causes. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to connect with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash freddy.org.za forward slash, or on Twitter at at Freddy. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank you for listening. Be safe. Bye.